Good morning. I am Corey Stamper. I am an elder at City Church Philly, and I will be reading our gospel today from Mark 11. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. Glory to you, O Lord. When they were approaching Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Just say this, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here immediately. They went away and found a colt tied near a door outside in the street. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They told them what Jesus had said, and they allowed them to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Then those who went ahead and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Then he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Our gracious God, we come to you uh, on this Palm Sunday, acknowledging that we are in strange times. Um, we bear a lot of burdens right now, some of which we are used to bearing and some of which are new. And so we pray that this morning, as we sit with your scriptures, that you would meet us and that in your kindness and by the power of your spirit, that you would enable us to behold something of the glory of your son, Jesus and that you would strengthen us and stir us to new life. We ask through Christ our Lord. Amen. Holy Week, uh, which begins today on Palm Sunday, is always a mysteriously complex week in the life of the church because we simultaneously remember uh, with solemnity the final days leading up to Jesus's suffering and death and also prepare for this great celebration of celebrations, this Easter moment that's coming uh, when we celebrate God's victory and power displayed in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And that mixture of sorrow and joy is strange chemistry. And Holy Week teems with it, even under normal circumstances. But this year, uh, we are well aware that these are no ordinary circumstances that we are in. This year, we come into Holy Week uh, under extraordinary circumstances, which only adds, I think, to the complexity and the mystery of the week. What does it look like for God to meet us now in this moment of isolation and fear? What does it look like for us to be moved right now by God's spirit when nothing in our world is moving except for the healthcare system? What does it look like for us to be drawn out of our self-focus and drawn up into the story of Christ when everything about our lives right now looks like lockdown and not being 
drawn out? I think these are some of the hard questions that we sit with as we enter into Holy Week under these conditions. And as my wife Bonnie and I have been reflecting on our own experience, and as we've been talking with others, many of you, uh, a number of themes have become pretty apparent and prominent in those conversations. Uh, one of them is loneliness. Um, you know, we don't live alone, but some of you do. And, um, and for those of us who don't live alone, uh, we have an experience that's sort of like this weird blend of claustrophobia that meets loneliness, right? Where I'm an extrovert and, and need people, and I'm glad that I'm with my family, uh, but it's hard to be stuck in our house. It's hard for you. And if you live alone, you have an, the shape of that difficulty. Uh, it is, it's real and it, uh, it's particular to you. I, I went over to Tuck's house yesterday just to deliver uh, some stuff and we wore our masks and I wore my gloves, fear not. Uh, it was a contact-free delivery, but I found myself lingering on his doorstep for uh, just unnecessarily long. We had no more things to say, but it was like a person face-to-face -face contact with a human. I'm starved for it. I'm lonely. And I find myself wanting more out of this moment than what it can give me. Another theme that emerges often is just the theme of anger. Um, or maybe we should say anger, frustration, and disappointment. Those are different things, but I think we can roll them up into one right now. Uh, but just this idea that for many of us, plans have blown up in our face, right? Um, we had a sense of where things would be going, of what we wanted life to look like in this season, and this wasn't it. And so many of us are wrestling with the question of where is God in all of this? Or we have anger at other people or institutions or the government or whatever. And, um, and so we find ourselves in these scapegoating conversations where uh, we just want to blame somebody for this problem. Uh, my daughter, Annie, who's seven, described uh, this past couple of weeks as the worst time of her life. Um, she misses being at school with her friends, and that's just real. Another theme is stress, right? Um, we're stressed out. We don't want to get sick. Nobody wants to lose their job. Uh, this, is a, this is a time of worry. It's a time of grief, too, um, where we lament the loss of important things that we were looking forward to, whether it was ordinary stuff like seeing our friends, um, the things that we just are used to doing, or whether it's more of the once-in-a-lifetime special moments, weddings, graduations, even funerals for those who have passed away during this time when no one can be near. These are real things. And another theme that has been prominent is the theme of failure, shame, and guilt that in the midst of this reality, we all have these ideas of what it looks like to do a good job, to quarantine well, to parent well, to hunker down and bunker down well. Uh, and it seems like every time I'm talking with anyone, there's this idea that um, our own experience, our own actual performance in this season has not measured up to what we feel like we ought to be doing. And so a, a really crushing sense of failure is something I hear from a lot of people and something that my wife Bonnie and I have wrestled with ourselves in this season as we've tried to figure out parenting and schooling and all of that. And so we bring all of these things right now into this season and we're entering Holy Week with all of this stuff going on in our lives, an already complicated season, an already mysterious season, only uh, made more so by the situation that we're currently in. 
I don't know if you caught N.T. Wright's article in Time magazine this week uh, called Christianity Offers No Answers About the Coronavirus It's Not Supposed To. It's a lovely article, and I commend it to you if you haven't had a chance to read it yet. Uh, But he writes this in that article. He said, there's a reason uh, that we ordinarily try to meet in the flesh. There's a reason solitary confinement is such a severe punishment. And this Lent has no fixed Easter to look forward to. We can't tick off the days. This is a stillness, not of rest, but of poised, anxious sorrow. No doubt the usual silly suspects will tell us why God is doing this. A punishment, a warning, a sign. These are knee-jerk would-be Christian reactions in a culture which generations back embraced rationalism. Everything must have an explanation. But supposing it doesn't, supposing real human wisdom doesn't mean being able to string together some dodgy speculations and say, so that's all right then? What if, after all, there are moments such as T.S. Eliot recognized in the early 1940s, when the only advice is to wait without hope because we'd be hoping for the wrong thing? Wright says rationalists, including Christian rationalists, want explanations. Romantics, including Christian romantics, want to be given a sigh of relief. But perhaps what we need more than either is to recover the biblical tradition of lament. Lament is what happens when people ask why and don't get an answer. It's where we get to when we move beyond our self-centered worry about our sins and failings and look more broadly at the suffering of the world. In the story of Jesus, and specifically in the story of Holy Week, uh, we don't see a story, we don't get a story where we get easy answers to our complicated questions. What we get instead is a glimpse into the heart of God who grieves with us, into the heart of a God who enters into our sufferings with us and then carries the story of our suffering forward toward the beautiful future that God has promised to establish in the earth, the future of health, justice, beauty, wholeness, joy, and peace, whose fullness we await and hope even as we lament its absence. And that story of Holy Week begins with this Palm Sunday scene when Jesus rides into the city of the great king humbly on a lowly colt, riding on in love and courage toward his coronation of thorns and enthronement upon a Roman cross. It's a complicated scene. It's full of mixed symbols and messages. It's full of symbols of military might and then the ironic juxtaposition of Jesus humbly riding on a colt, going not to win a battle by traditional means, but to die and to win a much greater battle in doing so. Just to set the stage, this story is one that we've become so familiar with, we often miss some of the, some of the more important meaning of it because it's one of those that we can almost gloss over because we've heard it and read it so many times. But just to set the stage, You know, this is a a story that's happening at the time of the Passover feast in Jerusalem, where people have come from all over the land to gather in the city to celebrate the festival. And so there's a lot, there are a lot more people than than usual crowded into the city. And for that reason, uh, there are increased security measures that the Roman Empire is taking just to make sure that these people don't get unruly when they're all gathered together. And so, for example, Pontius Pilate whom we'll meet later in the story, he has come to town 
He's not normally in Jerusalem. He's the big boss man, but he's come in as an extra security measure for crowd control, if you will. And so the scene is there. And this is the kind of time when lots of would-be rebel leaders might try to gain a populist uh, momentum and start an uprising as the Jewish people lived under the tyranny of Rome and longed to be delivered. There were many such insurrections at that time, and the feast time when the crowds are gathered was exactly the kind of moment someone would try to do something like that. And so as Jesus that comes in on this triumphal entry scene, uh, it's a little bit ironic because what everyone is expecting is the rebel leader who's going to take up the work of doing this military coup. What they want is the rebel leader who's going to drive out the Roman authorities, who will restore the temple state that they're used to. But what Jesus is doing is something clearly different from that, something Mark has been showing us all the way through his gospel. Jesus is not trying to restore Israel to its former greatness. He's actually trying to do something new and to take it into a kind of greatness and glory that it's never known before, which is not just one nation with nationalistic fervor and pride among all of the nations, but it is the nation of Israel being a blessing to all the nations of the earth to be gathered as one family under the love and blessing of God. This is what Jesus is up to as he rides into town. And the scene that we often call the triumphal entry, even this reflection is called triumphal entry in your bulletin, um, that might be somewhat of a misnomer. That might not be the best name to give this because this isn't clearly a triumphal scene. It's intentionally a mixed scene. It's sort of like a political spoof a little bit as Jesus is kind of spoofing militaristic liberator rebels and, and maybe like a Saturday Night Live-esque fashion while he's also carrying forward the story of God's actual liberation of the people. And so this story, the way Jesus enacted it and the way Mark tells it in his gospel really highlights the contrast between the crowd's expectations of a military coup and Jesus's actual destination and intention which is the cross. And so this is a scene that's full of both military and non-military images, intentionally putting together things that don't fit to highlight just how inexplicable Jesus's arrival as Messiah was when he rode into the city of the great king. He rides on a colt. He takes up the tradition of the prophet Zechariah, who prophesied that the Messiah would come meek and riding on a donkey or a colt. Jesus has no intention to restore Israel to its former greatness, but instead he comes to bring the story of God forward into its fullness, into this new moment. The people, the crowds, they line the way and they're shouting this word, Hosanna, which comes from Psalm 118, which is a popular psalm at Passover time. It was one that would be traditionally read. And it's a word that you see in the Old Testament that's used to uh, address kings, uh, in the religious tradition of Jesus's day, it was often used to address pilgrims or well-known rabbis at feast times. It was used, uh, literally, it means save us now, but it's used more like what you might say, God save the king, if you will, than uh, save us because we're in trouble at this moment. And so Jesus is riding into town and it's somewhat ironic that you've got the crowd saying, God save the king or God save the Messiah at the very moment that Jesus is determined to ride on to die. He's up to something far different than what the palm-waving people want from him and what they expect from him.
And the story ends with something of an anticlimax where Jesus arrives in the city and he goes to the temple. And there's this moment where you expect this is it. The Messiah is going to do his thing and start driving out Rome and restoring everything. And he just doesn't do it. He goes in and he has a look around and then he goes back out of town, back to Bethany, where he came from. And the rest of the story of Mark's gospel much of which we've already read together in recent weeks, if you've been with us at either City Church or Liberty. Uh, this story of Mark's gospel, it follows the storyline of the tensions and the disillusionment growing around Jesus as these religious leaders, the crowds, and even the disciples struggle to understand what Jesus is doing and why he doesn't fit into really anyone's preconceived notions about what a Messiah is supposed to be and supposed to do. And what we will see over the course of this coming week, Holy Week, and the week that's told in the story of the Gospels, the story that unfolds uh, after Jesus' entry into the city, is that the crowd's cries will shift from Hosanna on Sunday to crucify him on Friday. As I've been reflecting this week on going into Holy Week, I've been reading Psalm 118, which is the psalm from which this Hosanna, blessed is, is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, is the, what these cries come from. It's the traditional Passover psalm uh, that, that shaped the cries of the people and the expectations of the people as they welcomed Jesus into town. I've been reading that and praying through it some this week, and I've been struck by one of the lines in that psalm especially, where the psalmist says this, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. And in the psalm, that gate is a literal gate. It's a, it's, a, it's a temple gate, and it's part of the Passover feast liturgy. Just basically saying, open the temple gates, and I'll go in there, and we'll celebrate the festival. But as I've been praying through this psalm this week, in preparation for Holy Week, I've been struck by how strange it is to pray a prayer like that. Uh, when all the gates in our world right now are quite literally closed and locked, not open at all. What is it like to pray the prayer and sing the song of these people in a moment when the whole world is closed down? And that made me think more as I've been reflecting, what might it look like for me to enter figuratively through the gates God is actually opening to me now in this season, that I may go in and give thanks to the Lord and participate along with the crowd, if you will, in this moment of welcoming Jesus and celebrating him. I think the Palm Sunday portrait of Jesus gives us this key to begin to unlock that answer of what does it look like for us in this moment to go through the gates God is opening to us now that we may go in and give thanks to the Lord. This portrait of Jesus, where we see really the heart of God, what he's like, and what it means that God is moving his story forward. Notice the compassion of Jesus. Notice the courage of Jesus. And in both Jesus's compassion and courage, see the faithfulness and the love of God. Jesus, he rides on. He rides on in compassion and courage. And as he does so, what we see Jesus, this most authentic and pristine picture of God, shows us something of what God is like. 
We see God's faithfulness and love enacted in this humble Messiah King who rides into the great city of King's past, not on a war horse, but on a lowly colt, riding through this crowd of cheering fans and supporters who want something from him that he has no intention of providing and who need something far greater from him they neither understand nor desire. Jesus, the humble king, he rides on. He doesn't pander to the crowd. He doesn't placate their misplaced nationalistic hopes or desires. But nor does he flinch at what he knows will soon be their betrayal of him. Rather, he persists in love and faithfulness, leading a fickle people and a fallen world into the future of God's promised wholeness, health, justice, and peace. He rides on in compassion and courage. He rides on to die, to give himself in love for the sake of God's beloved world. This is what God is like. This is who God is. The God who is with you in your lonely moments is the one made known to you in the humility and love of Jesus. The God who sits with you in the midst of your anxious worry and stress is the one who has secured a future for you of permanence and plenty in this world and who even now is stirring up people all over the world to love their neighbor and share resources and offer help. The God who meets you in your grief is the one we meet in Jesus, who weeps over the very city that he enters as king. Do you know that your God weeps with you? Do you know your God grieves too? Will you weep with him rather than withdrawing to weep alone? Perhaps this is what it means for us to go in through the gates God opens to us in this season. Will you also see that this God who meets you in your moments of feeling like a total failure, as your best efforts to adjust to this life and the new normal feel like they're just never quite good enough, that this God is the one we come to know in Jesus, who looks on this crowd with compassion and love, all while knowing that they will soon betray him and call for his death. Would you let his voice of compassion speak to that inner voice of criticism in your head this week? Would you let his voice of compassion put that critic in its place? And will you let your attention shift back away from all that you feel like you're doing or not doing well enough right now, and instead recognize the compassionate, loving gaze of God who sees you, who's glad to be with you, and who knowing all of those things about you, the things that make you feel guilty or ashamed or foolish, doesn't flinch at your failure. He doesn't flinch at your fickle heartedness but instead beholds in you the beauty of his own handiwork and holds you fast to himself because his love is steadfast and his delight in you is great. This is the portrait of God that we get in Jesus. And this is the God we need to know if in this season of quarantine, a season of grief and loneliness and stress and fear of uncertainty, a season of cabin fever and feeling like we're stepping on one another's toes and simultaneously claustrophobic and lonely all at the same time, however that works. Will you know in this space 
that the God who has made all things, who in Jesus shows us that he is, committing to, he is committed to moving that story forward at all costs and has included you in it, this God loves you. He's with you. He weeps with you. He holds you. He suffers with you. He even dies with you that you may rise with him. This is the great hope that we have in Christ. This is the great hope we enter into this Holy Week. And my prayer for us as we do so would be that we would enter in deeply in the, all the complexity and all the mystery of this week, that we may be strengthened, comforted, and remade by the grace and love of God made known to us in our humble King Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.